Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. My name is Gary Cacciolillo, your host, and today our guest is Tom Moore, and um, he has a couple of books out, The Gentle Way, One and Two, First Contact, and Atlantis, and how do I pronounce this other continent, Lumeria? Uh, yes, Atlantis and Lumeria. All right. I was never sure about that pronunciation. Thank you for being on the show today. Sure. Glad to be here. Hello to everybody out there in internet land. <laughs> yes. Yes. Not just internet land anymore either. Now my show is on um, KGRA radio also at midnight oh, okay. on Sunday nights. Um, so how did you, um, what got, what started this whole um, story or, or maybe I say adventure of yours? Um, how did it all begin? Oh, it started a long time ago. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I have a, a small tour business. Um, it was a snow ski club in Dallas, Texas for single adults. Okay. And one day I was reading in the Dallas Morning News. Um, they had an interview with, a, with an astrologer. And, um, uh, and he, his hobby, believe it or not, was the Dallas Cowboys. And, and this is way back in the day. And he said, because the, at that time, the Dallas Cowboys had never been to the Super Bowl. And he said, the Dallas Cowboys are not going to the, uh, to the Super Bowl this year. But, but they're going next year, and these are the reasons they're not going this year. So he gave about 10 reasons or so. And I'd never read anything like that. And so, because all, all I'd ever seen was a little astrology forecast in the newspaper. So I tore the story out, put it in my desk, and at the end of the football season, I, I brought it out. And sure enough, he had hit on about 80% of the um, – uh, of the reasons why they, they didn't make it. So I said, well, I don't, I don't know how this works, but I reserved 300 airline seats in advance uh, because I was a known tour operator doing snow ski tours up to Colorado and, and Utah, et cetera. And uh, uh, so I reserved these 300 seats a year in advance and uh, I became the first tour operator in Dallas to ever run a trip to the Super Bowl and, and did quite well financially, as you can imagine. It, it allowed yeah. me to, uh, to start my own travel agency and, and buy a duplex. And <laughs> so it was a nice little jump up. And so I said, well, I don't know how all this works, but I think I better start studying it. And so I started having my ski club parties for all these singles. And, and so many people were getting married that I had to change the name <laughs> of the ski club from single skiers to snowman skiers. And, uh, uh, and so I started having all my parties on, on nights when it was like uh, the, the moon trines Venus or, or, you know, Venus, 
sextile Mars or whatever, all these different aspects that, uh, and the ski club doubled in size and, and all this led to me starting a, a regular tour company that didn't just specialize in, in ski tours, but, um, I started running thousands of people to Las Vegas and, and also, uh, I became the first, uh, well, the second largest tour operator down to the Cayman Islands and, uh, with tr- first, uh, jet charters down there. And then eventually when uh, the Cayman Airways started flying out of Houston, I had, I had flights three to four times a week. So that's, that was how it started. And, and, um, uh, uh, started me down the path. Then about 1979, um, I started recording my dreams. I'd done a little bit of it in the 60s, but, but I started recording my dreams in 1979. And a couple of weeks after I started recording my dreams, um, I had a very vivid dream of an explosion with a woman and some men involved. And it was very vivid to the point where I, um, my wife and I were supposed to be flying to Manila for a world conference of travel agents. And we were going on from there to, to Taiwan and Hong Kong. And so we decided to drop Manila, but still went and added days to Taiwan and Hong Kong. And on the first day of the, uh, of this World Congress, terrorists blew up a, a bomb in the hall up towards the front where I like to sit. And um, uh, a, a, a woman and four men were arrested uh, f- uh, for the bombing. So I said, well, I'm going to record the dreams, my dreams every morning, the rest of my life. And I have <laughs> all it's the like way a, up to now. It's like an Edgar, a, um, Edgar Casey type of moment. Pardon? Like an Edgar Casey type of moment where you have like a No, no, that, uh, that was just waking up in the middle of the night from a dream and, and uh, having a dream uh, uh, journal and uh, going in the bathroom with a nightlight <laughs> so I wouldn't wake my wife up and I would record, record the dreams. And right. so I had many precognitive dreams after that. I had... Uh, like when the space shuttle blew up on takeoff with the, the teacher and the other astronauts. Um, I dreamed I was in a glass capsule and uh, high in the air, and suddenly I was beneath the ocean. Um, when the Delta uh, Airlines plane crashed on landing uh, in at the DFW airport in the 80s, I a, a, couple of weeks in advance, I dreamed about a Delta-shaped plane crashing. Uh, so these are kind of symbolic. You know, it didn't get in a way, get in the way of the event actually happening. But, but I was told on a dream state that something was, was going to happen. And then, and then one of the weirdest dreams I ever had, thank goodness I've never had that dream again, was a couple of weeks before the uh, uh, before the 9/11, I had three dreams. I, one, uh, I, I dreamed of a Northwest 
airlines plane crashing uh, up to the east of Chicago. Um, I dreamed about a, a biplane crashing, which would be symbolic of two wings, two planes. And, and the weirdest of all, I dreamed about a tornado uh, going across the face of an office building with a line of people sitting in invisible chairs following along behind it. So you, you can dream uh, precognitive dreams, some much more uh, specific that you can figure them out, and others very symbolic. So that's, and it's also a, a good help uh, when you're aiming at uh, uh, doing stuff in meditation. Is this something that a person can learn how to do, or is this just? Um, well, of course, uh, everybody can record their dreams. Yes, Some people yes. say, oh, I, I never dream at night. That's because they've never really tried. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, you have to, to set yourself up. You have to have the dream book. Uh, I, on the dream book, I put down the next day's, next morning's date, and where I'm located, what city. And um, so I have my pen and, and journal there. And, uh, and anybody could just buy one of these five, uh, whatever they're called, a large notebook, you know, like people buy for, uh, for, for uh, school. And you could start off with that. And, uh, and so, each, uh, so you're, you're setting yourself up saying, I, I request a most benevolent come to record my, uh, to remember my dreams tonight. You can say that out loud and, uh, and then have a little nightlight so that you can, uh, you, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you can write the dream down and close, close your eyes and go back to sleep. So it's, it's, a uh, it's setting your intent. And that's, that's the important thing. You have to set, set your intent and, at first, you know, if you haven't been recording dreams, maybe you'll only remember a word or maybe a color or, or maybe a place. But eventually, suddenly you'll start recording a whole page of, of a dream, you know, in very specific detail. Just before I started this interview with you, I was chatting with a friend of mine who wrote a book called Dream Patterns. Uh-huh. And the entire book is about keeping a dream journal. Oh, that's interesting. Isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> How that ties in. Hmm. Yeah. Great minds think a lot or something like that. <laughs> so, so, so how does this lead into um, you, you know, acquiring this information about, um, you know, well, that, the seeding of the planet? And- yeah, well, that, that's still a ways in advance. So I'm, okay. I'm, I'm still catching you up. <laughs> so... So uh, anyway, um, one day, uh, about oh gosh, uh, over twenty-five years ago, somewhere around the late nineties, and, and I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly when because I didn't, I didn't write down. Oh, I'm starting to do this. I had, I had tried all these different modalities because you know, being being a little small businessman, I. Uh, uh, I was always looking for ways to, you know, to get ahead. And uh, 
So one day in the Sedona Journal of Emergence uh, magazine, I, I read a, uh, a, a, a spiritual article by a gentleman by the name of Robert Shapiro, and he was channeling a, a being by the name of Zosh. And Zosh said in it, he said, uh, you can request benevolent outcomes in your life. And I said, oh, that's kind of interesting, because I'd been trying the law of attraction. It didn't, it didn't seem to work <laughs> at all. I'd, I'd put a, using the law of attraction idea, I, I put a, a photo of a private jet behind me in my office, uh-huh. thinking, well, if I could ever get to the point where I'd either own a private jet or be able to use a private jet, I'd, I'd, I would be successful. And that never happened. So, so I was trying to think what, of something else. And so I said, I, you know, that sounds interesting. And so I started experimenting with requesting benevolent outcomes in my life. And I found that it worked absolutely perfectly. And I said, gosh, this is really neat. And so, I, I, as I say, I was experimenting with it. And, you know, at first I was saying, well, I request a benevolent outcome, you know, for a parking space. Parking space would show up right right as I would get there. You know, very mundane things where I was getting immediate feedback. And then I started uh, thinking, you know, I started to write about it. And I said, you know, I didn't want to call it benevolent outcomes every time. That's awful long. So I thought about saying B.O., and I said, well, that doesn't sound very good. So, <laughs> so I added most benevolent outcomes to it, and it comes out MBOs. And uh, so, so I even wrote an article for the Sedona Journal. They liked it. Their readers liked it so much that they put it on, and keep in mind, this is late 90s, they put it on their, their uh, website, and it was extremely popular. I started, you know, writing more, and um, uh, and eventually, uh, I've been a, a columnist for them for over twenty years. But uh, uh, but to continue on the path, um, uh, my wife and I decided to go to Sedona to uh, a a seminar for increasing your psychic abilities put on by Dick Sutphen, spelled S-U-T-P-H-E-N. He's a a master hypnotist, uh, president of a hypnosis society at one point and and, uh, uh, author of a million selling book called uh, You Were Born Again to Be Together, I believe it was. Is he still around? Uh, Yes, he's retired and I just got noticed the other day that Hay House is going to take over selling all of his, his uh, CDs and MP3s of, of all these different fantastic programs that, uh, that he has. And in fact, right now I'll say, and I don't make a dime off this, um, uh, I always recommend to people that they go to his website. And I, I, I don't know if it's changed over yet or not. But uh, uh, if you go to www.dicksutphen.com, click on a store, scroll down, and buy his spirit guides, um, 
MP3 or CD. Um, he, he is a master at taking you down, uh, letting you ask questions, and then bringing you back up. So anyway, we went to this seminar, and I'd, uh, in the meantime, a couple of years before, I'd, uh, I, when I um, drove a truck with my daughter's um, uh, furniture and everything out to Los Angeles, where she was going into an apartment, uh, going to school at Loyola Marymount. They, they have to go into apartments after, I think, their freshman year or something like that because um, they don't have enough housing on campus, at least not at that time. Um, so uh, I stopped in Sedona. Uh, a, a French buddy and his girlfriend were helping me drive out, and I got to meet uh, 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 Robert Shapiro, and he did a reading for me. Um, I, I, uh, I was to go on and have another reading, I think. Can't remember when it was, but uh, I had asked if my sole uh, contract in this life, my, uh, what, I, what I was supposed to be doing in this life, was to support Robert Shapiro's work. And I was told no. And this was told to, to me by... A, an Indian shaman that he channeled by the name of Reveals the Mysteries. So, so when we went to this seminar in Sedona, uh, uh, Dick was putting us under each day, and, and boy, by the end of the day, you'd feel like you'd had a whole bottle of wine or something. I mean, you're really high because he'd put you down and under and back up so many times. And um, so the second day, he was going to have us do automatic writing and see what we could do there. So it, I decided instead of, of uh, doing that, I was going to uh, see if I could contact Reveals the Mysteries because I'd always wondered, why did he say that was not my sole contract? And so I, when he put us under, I said, okay, reveals the mysteries. Are you there? And he said, yes, I am, Tom. And I said, oh, wow, this is great. So I went ahead to ask him. He said, oh, Tom, he said, you're an Indian shaman living at the same time I am. This was in the mid-1600s where he lived. Right. And he said, your name is Stillwater, and you had decided to incarnate into the 20th and 21st centuries to reintroduce people to the gentle way. I got the name of my first book the very first time I ever talked to him. So, and then he went on to tell me, he said, you're going to write books. And I said, no, no, I'm a business guy. I was playing at that time. Uh, I was no longer in the tour business. My wife and I uh, had gone into international film and TV program distribution business. And I said, you know, I was doing okay with that. And, um, and I thought I was just going to be doing that till, till I retired. And he said, no books. And I said, well, okay. And I wrote my first book within 90 days. Wow. So that was, that was the start of it. And since then, I estimate that since 2005, when, when my wife and I went to that, um, uh, 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 seminar, mm -hmm. uh, I've asked about 25,000 questions in a meditative state. 
and people from all over the world send me questions to ask because I'd never think to ask all, all the questions that they send in. And uh, they send in these questions for me to ask uh, when I do these meditative sessions, which go on for an hour and a half, max two hours, two hours because it really is very, uh, uh, it really strains me to, uh, to concentrate in order to, to listen to what these are called thought packets. Right. And, and uh, they're received, everyone has, has the pineal gland in the back of your uh, or head or center of your head or whatever. And scientists only know that it secretes melatonin, but it also, I've been told, acts as the antenna for all types of telepathic thoughts, not, not just uh, channeling, or, uh, but, but psychics and, and anybody that, uh, even if you uh, suddenly think, oh, I, I got to call uh, Aunt, Aunt Julie, and you call her, and sure enough, something's happening with Aunt Julie across the country. All of those are thought packets. Well, all of those are telepathic thoughts of one type or another that you're receiving. So it's almost like um, a cell phone, like like we just receiving data, but it's working yeah, through you're, that you're receiving in, it. in our yeah. brain. Yeah, and and I would continually ask. Uh, I'd started uh, asking questions of my guardian angel Theo after after I'd gone so far with reveals the mysteries. Reveals the mysteries. Told me all about how bad life was in the 1600s because they didn't have horses, they didn't have canoes. Everywhere they went was on foot. And he said, "We have sturdy feet." That's the way he described it. And they were always hungry. Uh, they lived in the mountains in uh, in the western part of the United States, which I won't say which tribe I know, but I don't want the shamans, the uh, modern shamans, to suddenly be contacted by people saying, oh, can you talk to so-and-so for me? You know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, you know, it's something that everyone can do. And I'm supposed to encourage everybody to do this because I'm told in the future, in future generations and all, everyone will be meditating. And uh, it's something that everyone can do. Everyone has this pineal gland. And uh, uh, the scientists just haven't discovered this extra, extra use our brains use it for. Hmm. And, um, and then how did that lead to you finding out about um, some of your past lives in Atlantis? Well, um, naturally, I, I started off with, with um, uh, at least knowing that the general way was at least three or 400 years old. And so I started thinking for a long while. Um, and, you know, in between all these questions I was asking, because I'd even, by 2007, I was uh, putting out a weekly newsletter. And I started thinking, well, you know, how, if, if the general way is three or 400 years old, how far back does it go? Thousand years? And so one day I asked, you know, Theo, I said, well, how old, you know, is the general way? He said, ah, oh, time. 
He said it dates all the way back to the time uh, about uh, to the time of the days in Atlantis. He didn't tell me exactly which time period at that time. Um, when when you were inspired to create the gentle way, and you had over a million people that were requesting benevolent outcomes, and they were following the gentle way. So I was like kind of a a spiritual leader at that time period. And uh, because it was something that the two main religions of Atlantean times were the law of one and the sons of Belial. Mm -hmm. And any, uh, no matter what religion you were in, you, uh, you believed you could request benevolent outcomes. So as I say, it was a million people. There were a lot, uh, many more millions of people than that, but a million people were, we're doing that on a daily basis. Hmm. And um, did you, how, from there, how did you find out about some of the origins um, of our species? You know, the seeding of the planet, things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it came in all these thousands of questions because, uh, because I, I started going back on it to find out, well, how far back does this go? And it, it, it turns out that, that what's going on now is what's called the Earth Experiment. And not all of this is in that book because, obviously, since that book came out, I've continued to ask hundreds, if not thousands, of more questions. And, and the creator of this universe, and there's billions of other creators and billions of other uh, universes, um, the, the creator of this universe decided that it wanted to uh, see uh, if, uh, it turns out that there's four negative energies that exist and, and there are 10 positive energies. Well, all of our universe and all of the billions of other universes only operate with these 10 positive energies. Now I'm told that because scientists are not even looking for these, it'll be hundreds of years before they ever figure out that, that there are four negative energies and 10 positive energies. So the creator wanted to see if there was any way to work with these negative energies. One of the reasons was because even though uh, there are societies in this universe that are billions of years old, okay, easily billions of years old, um, that, that they had reached a, a stagnant standpoint where they couldn't progress past about 5.3, 5.4 uh, on, on the dimensional scale, I guess you would call it. And at least that's the way it's described to me, keeping in mind that my degree in college was finance. It was not science. I'm not any, not even close to understanding quantum physics. So they kind of dumbed down the, the answers to me. So I and most of my readers can understand uh, what they're telling, what they're saying. And um, so so uh, 
the creator decided to do this earth experiment where the creator and asked for volunteer souls from not only this creation, but, but uh, even it sounds like other creations to volunteer uh, to be uh, of, uh, involved in this uh, earth experiment. And there was a special space-time continuum that was created to house this experiment, which is basically around our, our solar system, as best I can understand. Okay? That could, be, that could change in the future, but the best I can understand. Okay. And so that's, that's sort of how it started. And the creator started uh, asking these ET societies uh, to assist in developing a, uh, a, a being that would be able to take all the stress of, first of all, not knowing uh, where, where we came from, uh, because one of the things these volunteer souls were, were um, promised would be fast-tracking their vibrational levels, okay? All souls want to increase our vibrational levels, but most of the time it's very, very slow, millions of years to move up the scale. And so that was the first promise. Second promise was that eventually we would, uh, we would increase our vibrational levels and all to the point where we could meld together and become a creator. And this has never happened in any of those other billions of universes where souls would combine to become a creator. So that's, that's the big carrot <laughs> that all of our souls volunteered for. And, and besides having lives on earth, our souls are also having maybe 500,000 to over a million lives going on all over the universe for their learning, their extra learning as part of the learning about this universe um, and all going on at the same time. So, so they're really busy, busy kids, you could say. Wow. So, so one day all our souls will merge and we'll become a creator of our own universe. Uh, not our own universe, this universe, it will allow this creator to go to a higher level, which uh -huh. our creator does not even know what that higher level consists of. So we kind Theo, of push my, them up Theo, my guardian level. angel, tells me that um, uh, that our creator would be ranked in the top five of all the billions of creators. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, so... Does this kind of have kind of coincide with like the work of like Zachariah Stitchin? Some of this, have you ever been uh, familiar with his work? Um, yeah, with his I'm, I'm familiar with it. Uh, uh, I, I've been told that he got you know some things right, and he also translated some things wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he was kind of like all over the map. Um, if someone uh, on my website, which is www dot the gentle way book dot com um, uh, if you go to articles and news 
I have a search box. I have all of my newsletters from 2007 onwards um, that are archived there. And if you want to do a search for Zachariah, make sure you spell it correctly. Um, you, uh, you can see all the questions that I've ever asked about him and his work. And that's, that goes for anything, any kind of topic, uh, you know, you want to look up, just type it in the, it's a Google search box, but it, it's for that page filled with all these newsletters. My newsletter is typically, uh, well, like the one that I just sent out uh, yesterday was 13 and a half pages long. Wow. So uh, they, they averaged anywhere between 10 and 14 pages every single week, 52 weeks a year. And it's free. There's no charge for the newsletter. Yeah, so I hope my, I'm sure my listeners will be going there to get that newsletter and to do some research. Um, but also, when I read your book, it makes me think of two other books um, that I have read. One is The Book of Zion, and the other one is a book that was channeled. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's like The Book of Urantia or Rantia. Yeah, if you if you type that in the search box, you'll see that that book is not for this timeline, okay? Now, I have to, when you bring up something like that, I have to go for a further explanation. Uh, as, as you know, in that Atlantis and Lemuria book, there is a chapter on parallel uh, worlds, parallel lives, time, and they're called timelines. We're, we're on a middle frequency. There are 12 timelines. They're... They're divided into, uh, into fours, then subdivided into twos. So the upper timelines are on higher frequencies. They have easier lives than the ones than people do on lower frequencies. So in other words, there would, there would be 12 Garys, okay? Wow. And so you're, you and I are on timeline number six, which is the middle frequency. So that's, uh, our, our souls did that because they wanted the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak. In other words, they wanted to compare all the lives against timeline number 12, which is non-physical and is considered the perfect life. That's what I want. And yeah, don't we all want timeline at least 11? <laughs> so darn. But, but I'm told, you know, the farther down you go, the hardier the soul fragment has to be in order to handle the lower timelines. So as an example, on timelines one and two, uh, I've died. I, uh, I, even on this timeline, I had congestive heart failure in uh, in 2006 and um uh obviously and it just so happened that because i was going to houston to do a, a talk on the book my first book um i i was having a a cough and so i went to a respiratory doctor and i said hey doc you know prescribe me an inhaler i gotta i gotta go to houston do a talk he said tom he said i'm not going to prescribe the the inhaler for you. Uh, he said, you've got congestive heart failure and you're going to go downstairs and check yourself into the hospital. And I said, well, 
gosh, Doc, I'm glad I wore my clean undies. So <laughs> that was that was my introduction. Probably on timelines one and two, I didn't I didn't get to a hospital in time. Didn't make it. That's interesting, and that's one of the things that resonated with me too. I do think that there's probably because I had a situation where I had a a seizure, an epileptic seizure. And about a mm-hmm. week later, I received a book in the mail on time paradoxes. And the receipt for the book was dated six months in the future. Huh. So, and, and it came from Oxford University. It wasn't like an Amazon book or anything like that. Uh, right. Uh, so I just kind of thought, like, wow, you know, maybe. I wonder if it you know, dropped down from timeline seven. Yeah. You know, it, it, because it, it, we we do cross we do cross timelines ever so often. Now we're mostly connected with timeline five, but there have been a couple of times in the last few years where we would cross with timeline seven in order for us to get the energy that timeline seven has. That's a higher energy. So, but you know, sometimes. Uh, my wife uh, one time lost a pie that she'd baked for Thanksgiving, gave it to her, our daughter. And, uh, and our daughter said, well, this is not what you said it was going to be. And, <laughs> and, and I was told, Theo told me, he said, oh, that, that pie went to timeline five and you got timeline five's pie. <laughs> <laughs> so things like that do happen. I believe that. Um, so we can back up and get back to the or- yes, or- yes, yes. origination right. of, mm-hmm. of us, I guess, if you okay. want to. Yes. Go, go um, Sorry. So, so anyway, um, the creator went to these, these um, uh, societies on these other plants. And yes, there's billions of societies, you know, people that uh, uh, think we're the, only intelligent species in the universe are kidding themselves. Uh, it, it's actually obviously due to religiously reasons, but it's um, but there are lots of other people in the universe besides us, and and some of them have been around, as I said, for billions of years. Um, so the he the creator asked them to create this this body that could stand all these. Uh, you know, this really hard living of the earth experiment. And so they had the knowledge, but not so much the practice of having done this. So they started out with things like, you know, you know, you've seen the, um, the very early humans, um, the Lucy's little foots, they're called Mm -hmm. um, very, very basic they started out with those and, and, um, and, and then they worked their way up. Uh, our scientists or our archaeologists have not found all the different types of humans that, that they've, that they've, uh, they tried. But among them, of course, were the Neanderthals. And there was about three and a half million of those at one time. Uh, only problem with the Neanderthals is that they were uh, they they like to eat each other. 
<laughs> and so their population never got really too large because of that. And, uh, and, and then came along the, uh, the crow magnets. Now, in today's world, in the last year or two, they started calling the crow magnets early humans. Mm -hmm. They don't know what the difference was between the Cro-Magnons and the Homo sapiens. Although I, I've been told that besides, of course, the eye structures, the Cro-Magnons had a sort of a rectangular uh, uh, squares uh, bone structure around their eyes. And I assume that was not too good for battles. Uh, you know, chipping off, it would cause infections and cause them to die or whatever. So they, uh, they rounded the eye sockets. Uh, but there are also internal things that they changed. It's just they've never found a crow magnon frozen in ice. And so they can't, they can't really say what the difference is on the interior. So they just, these days, they just call them early humans. And so there were about 5 million of them. And finally, about 60,000 years ago, they settled on what's called in the book, the Adam and Eve model, or uh, the Homo sapien. And this was 60,000 years ago. And these, these uh, ET societies could use, and, and I, I simply use this term, for us to have an understanding on our level, a, a very advanced 3D printer <laughs> that could pop out a whole human body in two and a half minutes. So they could, they could populate a whole area, you know, with, within one day um, uh, uh, using this machine or multiple machines. So Who knows? They have, they have to reproduce organically the, the population. I'm sorry? We need to have to reproduce organically in order to populate, basically. I didn't get that. Right. I mean, they didn't have to have babies born or whatever. They yeah. just produced full-size humans. And, and they were, you know, completely without clothes, anything. They, hit, they had to hit the ground running to... Uh, to get water and food and clothing and so on. So that's how, that's how that all started 60,000 years ago in every single continent. And they, they changed up, uh, they were told or as part of the planning that they, they had to use different types of humans, you know, the, the whites, the blacks, the, the browns, the, uh, you know, the yellows, because eventually they would all have to learn how to get along together, which we're still working on. Yeah, we still have a little ways to go on that one. Yep, a little ways to go. So, uh, so that's that's how um, how we all kind of started, and and of course, uh, probably well, the in Africa the black population was the very first and they probably let it uh, go on for 500 years or so before they started populating all the other continents just to make sure, well, let's make sure this model is the right one. And it was. 
So after that, all the others uh, came along. So they were all deposited within a thousand years of each other. And, um, and the populations grew from there. And um, how does this all connect with Atlantis? Okay. Uh, Atlantis and Lemuria act, were actually two continents that existed more than 60,000 years ago. Atlantis uh, was a, a continent that was 10% larger than modern-day Australia, and it existed in between North America and Europe and Africa. It actually came within 30 miles of Africa before turning back and slanting. Yeah, this was in the shape of a parallelogram. So the top of the continent was at about 47 degrees latitude, which 47 degrees latitude, if you were to run a line directly out from the, the bottom of, of Newfoundland or Newfoundland, depending on where you come from, uh, run straight out, that's the 47 degrees. So that was the top of Atlantis. And it actually had a tail that went all the way down. It, it, it ran, um, it, it ran parallel or, um, to, um, gosh, what did it <laughs> run parallel to, um, to North America. So it ran about a hundred miles offshore and, and that was, um, gosh, that, it, it existed there and, uh, and it started getting populated. So that was an existence. And the tail ran all the way down to the Bahamas. That's what I was trying to get at. Uh-huh. And, and uh, so it, it, if you could imagine sort of a, a smaller looking Florida, it, it, it ran alongside Florida, but it, it ran all the way down to, uh, to the Bahamas. And that was that continent. The Lemurian continent was, was about 12% larger than, um, than modern-day Australia. And it, um, uh, it, it, it ran within 100 miles of the Hawaiian Islands. So the Lemurians, for thousands of years, actually vacate vacationed on Hawaii. And that's why you have this great feeling of energy of this, of this Hawaiian energy. Okay. That they call Hawaiian energy or Tahitian energy or whatever that because the people vacationed there for many, many years. So, um, things, we're going along, uh, uh, several million people were living on the island of Atlantis. And 31,000 years ago, um, there, were, there was a line of volcanoes that, that bisected the whole continent. And all of those volcanoes 
blew up at the same time. And because of that, most of the, of the continent of Atlantis sank, leaving only scattered islands. So they, that, was, that was a terrible event that happened to them. And of course, they had mud that lasted for probably over 100 or 200 years or more until all the silt settled down from, from the continent uh, sinking because of the volcanoes. Okay. That's terrible. Now that um, that was a, Atlantis. Right. It, it, is the ruins that they found in the Bahamas and off the coast of Cuba part of Atlantis? Uh, no. If you're talking about uh, the Cuba on the east side, um, that uh, well, let me kind of go back and explain. When when the volcanoes erupted, sinking the major part of the Atlantean continent, um, there. Let's see. How do I explain this? Um, they. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I've lost my train of thought. Ask the question again. Uh, I asked if um, the ruins off the coast of Cuba and some of them found near the Bahamas are oh, part okay. of Atlantis. I was forgetting to mention that when the most of the continent sank, it, it uh, raised all the oceans of the world about 160 feet. So it destroyed, you can imagine, almost every single village, town, and city that was perched on a ocean's shore. It just completely wiped them all out. 160 feet it raised in, in the process of, of within a week. And so that was the first time that everything raised. Then we, we go forward in time, and this, um, we go forward in time to about 12,000, first of all, 12,700 years ago was when, um, was when I was um, a, a, a spiritual leader uh, you know, for Atlantis, and it's uh, that was when I migrated with twenty five thousand of my followers to Egypt because I was told in my meditations and even by an ET that in about two hundred years, uh, Atlantis was uh, the rest of Atlantis was going to destroy itself because after the 31,000 years, there was an island called Poseida, and that was the size of Cuba, but round in shape. And, and there was uh, an island 375 miles to the south in the Atlantic also called Aaron, and it had five little islands in a half-moon circle below it, and Aaron was, was larger than Hispaniola. So there were these these two major islands 
And they got to the point where they were warring with each other. And that's why I was told to get out of Dodge and take my people and, and migrate to Egypt. And, and so we migrated with 25,000 of the people that wanted to join me. And that, um, uh, uh, so when we got to, to Egypt, that's where we resettled. Um, they continued to war with each other. And finally, about 12,500 years ago, the, the people living on the island of Aaron just got tired of warring with the law of one people on Poseidia. And they did what I would call a, um, a, a Japanese sneak attack where they had over 300 of their aircraft with very potent laser weapons and they came across one morning in the, with the intention of completely wiping the people of Poseidia off the map, off the, the surface of the earth. And they started doing this with these lasers that would melt your, uh, uh, melt the ground on what you stood. And, uh, but the, Poseidians also had the same weapons and they started using the same ones against the, uh, uh, the people of Aaron, the sons of Belial. And between the two, they completely suck all the islands that were left from the Atlantean islands. And they all sunk beneath the ocean and the oceans again rose 41 feet this time. And this is when the story of Noah originated. Okay. Mm -hmm. and it, it actually happened 12,005 years, 500 years ago, not the 3000 or so that the Bible says uh, records were poorly kept. These were mostly verbal records that people would pass down from one generation to the next. So they had no concept of what, <laughs> how many thousand years, Went, right. went into this. Yeah. And um, so uh, Noah's ship actually, you know, floated away. Uh, it did not have lions and tigers and other violent ones. That was added to the, the stories because they were being told that the whole earth was, was covered with water, but it really wasn't. It was only up to 41 feet. And so they, floated away in the Mediterranean, landing on Mount Ariat and um, on the lower slopes, not the upper. And another thing that you can check on is that uh, one of, of Noah's sons actually married a girl whose family was not touched by the floods. Hmm. So that, that happened then. Now we take up Lemuria. Lemuria was an idyllic place for thousands of years, very idyllic. Only, I was told, in the last thousand years uh, did, did it really get bad. And this was leading up to 7,500 years ago. Lemuria, as I said, was, was a continent the size of 12% uh, 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 larger than Australia. It had five countries 
all divided, sort of like Europe is today, by mountains and rivers and things like that. And it was, uh, at one point, it was actually connected to Japan, but between the 160 feet rise in water and the 41 feet, uh, equaling out, of course, 200 feet, it, uh, it no longer connected to Japan. But it still was within 100 miles or so of, of uh, the Wine Islands. And even as it got worse and worse between these five, country, five uh, countries, uh, they would still go and vacation there, but one beach would be set up for one country, another beach for another country. And, you know, one beach, maybe they might be almost nudists or nudists, who knows. And another country, they might be almost fully clothed. It was all difference in religions and everything. And um, so uh, I, I asked one time, I said, well, did I ever have a, a life on Lemuria? And, oh, Tom, when I hear that, I know something's coming. Oh, Tom, you uh, helped sink the continent. It, it seems that I was a religious leader of one of the countries. And, and we were so tired of all these battles and everything that, that I, and I was encouraged them uh, to go ahead and drop what would be considered a hydrogen bomb on two of these other countries. So I encouraged them, uh, but they, they also, the leaders wanted to do it too. And um, so they, they dropped the bombs thinking that they didn't have any way to respond, but they had these same kinds of bombs too. They bombed us, and between it all, the whole um, continent of Lemuria sank into the ocean 7,500 years ago, and the oceans of the world rose another 170 feet or so, again, wiping out every single village, town, and city that had grown up in, in the past 5,000 years from the last time this happened, and uh, they all got wiped out too. Millions of people drowned, of course. It's harsh. Yeah. So it's, uh, that was my worst life on earth, I was told. And it took me 85 or 87 lives to balance that one. So that was, uh, that was harsh for me too. I died a bunch of times. <laughs> do, do you have any, any memories of those lives? Or well, I was what, told, what you know, told. I was told some of them. I mean, um, in World War One. I was a soldier and I, um, uh, I got, I was a German shoulder, soldier and I got shot fairly early in the war. And in World War II, I was uh, a little five-year-old Jewish girl who got shot by a German soldier um, uh, early in that war. And even back all the way to the Atlantean days, I had a life back on Atlantis when, when uh, the continent sank there. So I got to, I got to die in numerous ways. I, uh, I also was a soldier a, a couple of times um, uh, in Atlantis where we tried to conquer 
the African continent. The African continent at that time was known as, as Oz, the land of Oz. And so we would send a force over, even with all these powerful weapons we had that uh, used these crystal power, and we'd go over, and our Achilles heel was that for some reason our aircraft could not fly at night. And so they had thousands of these sort of Maasai warriors, and they would just wait until night, and they'd just come by the tens of thousands, and this wiped us out. So I died twice <laughs> in the land of Oz, uh, trying as a part of a, as a soldier, part of the the uh, invading force. Interesting. Can I ask you a couple speculative questions? Okay. Um, do you? Well, the tech. I mean, obviously, like these continents has some advanced technology. Um, do you think that, um, I mean, that we will find some of that technology? Find what? Find some like the Atlantean technology? Like that? Yes, we will. Behind? Yeah, we're going to rediscover it. You have to understand that a lot of people had it deeply ingrained in them uh, to never want to go close to this crystal power again because uh, they, they diet by it. And so, you know, deep in their psyche, they don't want to, uh, they have not wanted to discover it, but I'm told it's time that we, we look at it again because after we passed 1987's harmonic convergence, our, our vibrational level raised to the point where we will never destroy ourselves again. There will only be small conflicts from now on, and there will be virtually uh, hardly any conflicts by the end of the, this coming century. So we don't have to worry about World War III. Right, exactly. That's a relief. Yeah, it is. But that was always one of my fears growing up as a kid, you know. Oh, they're going to be drop nuclear bombs. It's going to be World War Three. Yeah. Well, all that, you all, grown all, up. That, all that scary stuff from when I was a kid. Yeah, you should have grown up when I did. The duck underneath your desk. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, my other question is, um, well, this, or did, what happened to the survivors? Did they can did they sort of de-evolve after the destruction? What what? I'm sorry. Say that again. Was there any survivors when these continents um, got wiped out? And like, what happened to them? Did they de-evolve or? Okay. Well, first of all, my group of the twenty-five thousand got out early, two hundred years early. Mm-hmm. So we went over to Egypt. Then there was another guy by the name of Thor or something. I can't remember. Uh, 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 and he brought a smaller group over, but he wanted to like control things. So he brought his group over. Then there was a group or so, one or two uh, that went down to the Yucatan and Guatemala right. and, re- and, and reestablished themselves there. And, and I don't know if anybody um, uh, 
survived. I, I can't remember if I've asked the question or not. I may have. Um, that went to North America before things, because keep in mind, Posadia, if you were to draw a line out from the north of Boston straight out, um, Posadia was located to the west of the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and then 375 miles to the south on a line directly out from Washington, D.C., which I think is kind of ironic <laughs> with, <laughs> with what, what they did. Um, uh, uh, you'd find Aaron and then the five little islands that were in a half moon below it. So I don't know, because keep, keep in mind, when the island, I mean, when the continent um, sank, they had to find these crystals elsewhere because they've been getting the crystals in close to um, um, uh, uh, you know close to these volcanoes that bisected the country, so they had to find another source. So they actually started mining near Hot Springs, Arkansas, to the west of Hot Springs. There's tons of crystals. I've got yes. <laughs> I've got some really nice crystals in my office. I have a friend um, who's an archaeologist who lives out there. Oh, okay. And uh, so they actually had these little small mining towns. They would mine an area, then they'd close up shop, move the whole little town to another area, and and mine that area. And supposedly there are there are entrances that you can still find to some of these mines, but the local farmers and all don't want people to come and tromp on their land to see this. Hmm. But um, that's where they got the crystals and they would transport them back to the coast and then over, over to the islands. Are they responsible for the crystal skulls? Oh, I have asked questions about that. And I can, it's been so many years, I can't, I can't uh, answer it. You'd have to go and do a search on my, uh, uh, in my search box uh -huh. about the crystal skulls. It's interesting. I was actually really introduced to one of the crystal skulls, and I did not feel like I wanted to touch it. Really? You've yeah. actually seen one? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. I said, I don't think I want to mess with that thing. So now, it could be if everything would have been okay, but at that time, I was being told not to, not to fool with it. Interesting. And, you know, it just makes me think, like, you know, with you have being, you know, on Atlantis and fleeing and taking people off of it because of what happened, maybe that would – somewhere deep inside of you makes you want to avoid it. And maybe the crystal skulls did take a, you know, did come from there. And maybe that's yeah. why you felt kind of uneasy around it. Could be. I don't know. I was told, uh, you know, well, why am I doing this book, you know, on Atlantis and Lemuria, The Lost Continents Revealed, which you can read simple ch sample chapters on at www.thegentlewaybook.com. Uh, get a little plug there. Um, oh, I, I was told that I've had more lives 
on Atlantis and Lemuria than any person alive, which it's like 180 lives on Atlantis and 65 lives on Lemuria. And, and I was told that, uh, you know, I could better tell the, the story than anybody else alive today. I asked why so few lives on Lemuria, and I was told it was because it was such an idyllic place for, for such a long time that it just wasn't, you know, there wasn't much happening for me to be there. And so I only had 65 lives. Um, how about the writings of Plato and Edgar Cayce? Um, yes. How about them? <laughs> um, like, one thing I mean, one of always been curious, like, how did Plato know or find out about Atlantis? Okay. I was told that his grandfather actually went to Egypt and, and secured, bought whatever, um, some parchments and brought them back. So they're actually, and, and I was told that these parchments even still exist in a basement of a museum somewhere. There's still proof of it. So that's how he got his information. Not that he was, you know, so many people have speculated, oh, he was, uh, you know, writing the story because of, of the po politics at the time or something like that. Right. And um, with Edgar Casey, did he ever live on Atlantis in a past life? And did you ever encounter him or you don't know? Well, I, I know I've encountered Ed, Edgar Casey on a past life. That life that I had where I went to Egypt with my followers, um, the Egypt, Egyptians were quite concerned because, keep in mind, Atlantis at one time conquered virtually the whole Mediterranean area before the continent sank and they had to withdraw. So, so the Egyptians had... Um, had records of being subjugated. So here, 25,000 Atlanteans show up and they were concerned, oh, we're going to get, you know, subjugated again. And at, so the two things happened. Number one is that there was an Egyptian princess that um, uh, was alive at that time and she, in her meditations, was told that we were good people, so she helped us resettle. And that Egyptian princess is my wife today. And her next life is going to be back not too long after that life. And, and she will be a man, and he will be a great leader for his people, and I will be his assistant and his closest advisor, but that's a past life for me. I've already lived that life, but that's her next life on earth will be, will be back in ancient Egypt. Okay. Now the other, the other person that was involved, you asked about Edgar Casey. Right. Uh, he was known as Rata. You can probably look him up in, in Edgar Casey literature. He was a, some type of, of Egyptian priest that had been banished to the outer lands or something. And they brought him back in to, uh, to deal with the problem with the Atlanteans. 
And so I actually met with him and convinced him that we were not there to conquer them or anything. We just were fleeing a bad situation and we just wanted to resettle and go about being farmers or whatever. Okay. Um, why do you think you're um, being influenced now, I guess would be the word, to write about these subjects? And did, are they going to have some kind of effect on us in future events? Like, is it to prepare us for something? Well, yes, but um, I, I was told that, that people have sort of kept this out of their mind because of these terrible events, and it's time to relearn about them because it was our history. And to know, because everybody sort of avoided it because they're afraid we're going to, uh, to blow ourselves up again, and that's not going to happen. So that's why these stories can come out again about our history and, uh, and will continue. So that's, that's the first major reason. And, uh, and, and it also kind of ties in with uh, all this, um, this Earth experiment and our dealings with extraterrestrials, because the extraterrestrials were the ones that gave the Atlanteans the crystal power. It was free energy. I mean, they powered every single thing they had, their cars, their buses, their, their homes, their their apartments, um, you name it, trains, planes, and all, we're all powered by this crystal power. But, but the, the uh, Atlanteans uh, took that crystal power and they made weapons out of it, okay? So that was, that was a bad thing that came out of that. Um, for the Lemurians, another group of ETs gave them free energy and what did they do? They made hydrogen-type bombs that destroyed the whole continent. So the ETs saw all of this coming, and they all uh, uh, they got together, and they issued what was called the Earth Directive. And basically, the Earth Directive said, let them sink or swim. That's going to be up to them. Mm-hmm. And so they withdrew. And these Atlanteans and all could not understand why suddenly their friends, these ET friends and all, suddenly said, we're leaving, goodbye, good, good knowing you, and they wouldn't tell them why. Because what was going to happen was way in, in the future, but they could see it coming. So now, do, do you think like the ETs completely left, or do you think some of them may have stayed behind just to observe? Well, I mean, they've, they've been observing ever since. I mean, right now, there are 25 motherships orbiting the Earth in a slightly tinier, different frequency, so we can't see them and be scared to death. And they're taking millions of readings a, a day. Uh, that are way beyond our understanding. Uh, I mean, they can, they can read auras, they can read minds, they can read, uh, you know, you name it, and, and they can, uh, they have uh, the equipment, which are millions of years ahead of us, in 
in uh, doing these readings, trying to see how we have been so successful at, at working with these four negative energies. As I say, this has never been done before in any of the billions of other universes. So of the 25 motherships, there's always two or so, and they limit them in number, uh, that are, are, are orbiting. Uh, they allow them from other universes to come and, and see, because we're, we're the stars of all the universes, because we, we've done some, something that no other society has ever been able to do. Do you think now that we're moving past that point where we're um, not going to destroy ourselves, that they will um, start making contact with us again? Uh, oh, yes. I mean, that's coming. I've um, Disclosure, in my book, uh, uh, First Contact, Conversations with an ET, I, I converse um, every week with, with a member of my soul group. His name is Antura. And, and when I say soul group or soul cluster, they're called, um, uh, on Earth, there are only fragments of our souls that are having lives on earth. So right. in my soul cluster, there are eight fragments having lives on earth. On, um, on average, there are six to 12 fragments of souls in a soul cluster. And so our soul cluster has lives with other soul clusters, uh, just like my wife. I'm sure I've had many more lives. I, I, I do know my next life on earth will be in the 3400 era, and she and I will be female uh, space pilots uh, on one of 17 Earth starships. It'll take all the way to 3250 for us to figure out how to uh, what's called portal hop from one, um, uh, from one uh, planet, our, let's just say our planet, to another star system. We, it'll take that long for us to figure out how that works. So we had many uh, revelations ahead of us to learn all about these energies. So, yes, uh, uh, we're one day in the future, we're going to join the Federation of Planets. And, and uh, it's, it's a lot bigger even than I, I was told that the, our Federation of Planets was 200-plus planets. Well, now, just in the last, literally in the last week, I was told, oh, well, there's actually thousands of planets, but we didn't want to scare you. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they keep feeding this information. Like Antura has told me his mothership, uh, it's, it's in the book, his mothership was a mile wide and, you know, three or four stories tall, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's not an awful bit. Later, he was to admit that, that this mothership he's on, that's orbiting overhead, is three miles wide, 20 stories tall with 11 decks, has a crew of 900 plus their families because a lot of the crew lives their whole lives on board the spaceship. Hmm. And so there's, there's some really big spaceships orbiting the Earth. Larger oh. sizes, that's the largest size allowed to orbit the Earth. 
How about the moon? Do you think the is is the moon natural or was it put there? Uh, oh, it was placed there from Jupiter, I think. Jupiter or Saturn. It was moved over. For what purpose? Um, as part of our learning, if you notice, the moon always faces directly towards us. It doesn't rotate at all. And that's one of the things that we are supposed, where we're supposed to learn, just like learning the earth is not flat, uh, the moon is not flat. And it's, it's just one of the many, many things that we have to learn. Awesome. Um, the, do you or um, any of your guys have a message to pass on to my listeners before we wrap this up? Um, oh, a message. Yeah, you know. It's, it's, yeah. It's like, Send light and love to everybody because, you know, everything is so divisive these days. If you say, uh, let's see if I can uh, give you something to say. Uh, I ask, uh, I send white light and love to every single continent, every single island, all the rivers, lakes, and streams, all the oceans and seas of the world. And I release this white light to go where is needed the most, to light up the darkest corners of this planet so there's no more darkness, only light and no more secrets. Now you have to say that out loud every single day. I do. And, and so I, I highly recommend, because when you're, when you're sending white light to the rest of the planet and everything, it's, it's going to make, uh, it's going to raise everyone's vibrational levels. And that's when you request benevolent outcomes, you are request, uh, Every time you request one, it, first of all, keeps you on your soul uh, contract, what you decided, what path you wanted to decide to, to be on in this life. And, and it, so it keeps you going in the right track. And it's, it's just, it, it works perfectly, and, and you can live a much easier life uh, by practicing the gentle way. I, I, I encourage everybody, go to my website. You can read sample chapters of all, all right. my books on my website at www.thegentlewaybook.com. And, and you'll, you'll start learning how to do a lot of this stuff. And then sign up for the newsletter. I mean, you know, we ask questions that are like going deep down the rabbit hole, but it's, but it's fun and to learn and, and you get a greater appreciation for, for life and, and for the creator and all. I highly recommend it. I definitely like that affirmation or um, mantra, whatever you would like, prayer, whatever you like to call it. It's very similar to some of the ones that are used in Buddhism too. Oh, you well know. the, you know, I'm told, Make sure that everyone says these prayers out loud because they are much, uh, they have much more energy, especially if let's just say a hundred people say exactly the same prayer like the one I'm recommending of 
of, of sending light to every continent and all. Um, if everyone sell, says that same prayer out loud, instead of being a hundred people, it takes on energy like over a thousand people. So it, it, it really creates a great energy and very, very powerful. Could, could you actually um, email that to me and I can put that in the notes for this podcast? Yeah, I, I think it's in every newsletter. Um, if, you were, if you were to go to my latest newsletter, right. uh, up, up towards the top below, I, I, you know, I had some special stuff this past time. But if you'll, uh, if you'll go, you'll find that very, very prayer that everyone, I encourage people to say every single week. And if you can't find it, uh, just email me and I'll, I'll send it to you. All right, I'll see if I can find it so I can include it in the notes. All right, well, thank you for being on my show and taking the time. Sure. It was definitely a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle, which I will be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. And Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everythingimaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening, and see you next week. You know, yes. You can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.